Snap No Tap podcast. I'm Tony Cicchini along with the, the living legend, um, Joseph Cardinal, uh, who wants me to come up with a new moniker for him because he says, you know, pretty much everybody in the developed world already realizes that he's the best looking guy um, that ever lived. So he wants me to start bragging about some of his other traits. So uh, I, that's going to be a work in progress. Uh, I'll probably be working on that during my recovery this week. Um, but we also have the greatest import from Poland in the, in the history of the world, and that's the legendary Martin Witkowski. Welcome, Martin. Thank you, Tony. And I agree with you. Like We can't just shoehorn uh, Joe into being one-dimensional as the best-looking guy in the world. We need to advertise some of his other features. Yeah, because he's so much more than just that. You know, he's not just a piece of meat, okay? I mean, we all know that. And being hopped up on drugs during your recovery would be a perfect time to imagine the other reasons we should be proud of <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, so I want to kick this off by saying that I met a guy. I got an email from a guy who's actually part of the – he's not a Tri-C member, but he, he subscribes to the membership site, William. Uh, I don't want to give out last names because, you know, uh, from California, and he just said, our schedules clicked. I said, hey, you want to do a Zoom? We So we talked for about 45 minutes on Zoom the other day. And, uh, you know, he's a real nice guy. And he went through hernia surgery. And I don't know why I keep thinking that what I was going through was called inguinal or something, but it's not. Okay, I, I looked it up yesterday. I had to get my blood work and my COVID test, and today I looked at the results. And I, I forget the name again. It begins with the letter S, but they don't know if that's all that's wrong. But so it's some S type thing, which I guess your intestines can get what they call strangled. Kind of ironic for for somebody like <laughs> me to get a strangled intestine. I guess it's, maybe I'll learn a new submission hole this week. Um, but yeah. So I just wanted to give a shout out to William. Uh, thanks for the support, my man. You were a good guy to talk to. I hope I get to see you. He invited uh, Joe and I actually to meet him uh, if we go to California to hook up with Eric Paulson. And I don't know if that'll ever happen, but I certainly extended the welcome out here um, to meet Joe and myself. And he's a little intimidated by you, Joe, uh, but who isn't, you know? Yeah, that's natural. That's understandable. But, you know, they get people get over it. I'm just an ordinary guy when it comes down to it. You know, you just get used to it. Just like people get used to being around you, Tony. You know, I, most people are thinking, gosh, here's, you know, living legend, catch wrestling legend. But really, he's just a guy on his couch. 
wants to do Zoom lessons, you know? And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Man, I thought my life sucked, but boy, I got to meet Tony and my life doesn't really suck. Is his worst. No, there's nothing ordinary about you, though, Joe. Don't ever sell yourself short. That's what we're here for. I love that, you know, fake modesty of yours. Um, You're really good at that. But anyway, yeah. So modesty too. yeah. We're filming this now. It's Sunday night here, uh, the 5th of March. So in two days, Tuesday, early morning, I'm supposed to have my surgery. But who knows? You know, th- anything can happen. But, yeah, so I'll, pr- I'll be able to do it podcast next week no problem um but uh i mean <laughs> we may be doing the podcast from the funeral parlor i mean you never know um the show must go on so anyway speaking of the show must go on uh martin what's up man what do you what do you want to bring to the show today well i wanted first to address some of the the hernia stuff because you're so persuasive at some point during one of our workouts you convinced me that i had a hernia too. <laughs> And I took the advantage of having a scheduled physical and uh, I told the doctor that he's got to check this out. And, you know, I was surprised there is some very well-defined procedures to determine if you have a hernia. It's hard to perform it on yourself because you can't get that kind of an angle to look at your own belly button while you're doing a sit-up. But for another person, they can just force a certain amount of movement in your core and see what happens. So I don't have a hernia, but I couldn't have figured it out by myself. I needed help. Professional help. I, I guess I need professional help is what I'm saying. Well, I figured you didn't because you're very lean. But what what this um, tells me, and this is a, probably a shout out to everybody out there. I, you know, I'm real lean now. I lost, you know, all that weight purposely. And um, that's when I noticed it. So who knows how long I've had this issue, whatever the issue turns out to be, hernia or something more involved. But like my surgeon told me, the only thing that's keeping me going right now is my visceral fat, my good fat, my internal fat around the organs, which we all have to have. I don't have that external, like, big bunch of belly fat pushing it in. So my point is there may be many, many, many people, heavyweight, uh, 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 overweight uh, people that may have tears or slight hernias and never really know about it um, because their their belly fat's keeping it keeping it in so uh yeah it's who knows right yeah and it's relatively common because I, I remember one of the guys we used to work out with um and this yeah. was you know 20 years ago <clears throat> he he had it right he had the surgery and he had the mesh installed and he's always been complaining about some degree of loss of flexibility in his core from from that surgery so it can happen early i mean we were i don't know 20 years ago we were like in their early 30s, late 20s. Well, and I have a, a umbilical hernia, which they just don't even acknowledge it. Um, they can't even be fixed. Like my surgeon told me, the tear would be so small. There's nothing we can do. Lots and lots of people have that. You kind of, you can get that from birth. I guess it's got something to do with your umbilical cord and so on. And So I've probably had that my whole adult life um, or my whole life. More, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Um, we're going to get in and out. I hope. Uh, I hope there's just no. It, I'm actually more concerned with how long the recovery is going to be because you know I got the seminars coming up, which is I can work around that. I can do the seminars, but I want to get back to lifting. So I've been doing a lot of lifting from my knees 
Um, well, for one, my ceiling is low in the basement, but you know, I am, I'm, I'm working on my knees, uh, or seated exercises. Um, and I can say partly because of the ceiling, but now it's interesting. Hey, can I work around, you know, as long as my core is not involved in the lifting, I should be able to continue to lift. So we'll, we'll see. I'll get a lift in tomorrow, but, um, I probably won't, I'm going to try to lift, you know, a few days after the surgery Friday. We'll see. If not, I got to wait till next Monday, maybe. Yeah, good luck with that. I mean that. Well, thanks. And you know that brings up a very interesting topic on on lifting. And and those of you who have followed me know that I've never been a bodybuilder. I've always been more power, more strength oriented. Um, always cared about strength. And ergo, when you're lifting strong, or when you're lifting for strength, you normally go heavy, less reps. Although we would do a burn set at the end just to flush. The muscles, right? Be it the bench or be it the curls or even overheads, which was pretty much insignificant. You know, we didn't care what the weight was. You know, it was like 135 on the bench or, you know, 25 pound dumbbells, you know, 25 pound curl bar, whatever. Um, but it's interesting that there's been so many through the years uh, debates about, you know, like the German volume method, you know, with Vince. Vince Gironda used to do the 10 by 10, 10 sets of 10 reps. And uh, how many days a week do you work your biceps, triceps the same day? These are things that, since I'm no longer interested in strength so much, I never realized in bodybuilding circles the the, the debates that, that go on about the exercises. Um, you know, I've mentioned it several times on podcasts that, to me, bodybuilders are just – they're amazing to me the amount of exercises they do and and what they put themselves through um i can honestly tell you that their training seemed much far more intense than my lifting types of training it just seemed much easier to lift for strength you know than it than it than it is for what they did and plus the dieting and all of that jazz um I got a lot of respect for them, but boy, you can certainly get lost in the world of confusion with, you know, misguided advice. Yeah. And, you know, that's actually, we've, we've talked a few times over the last few months about dieting. And um, I've listened to some podcasts talking about intermittent fasting and that kind of stuff. And they blame the bodybuilder culture for bringing this new standard about eating a lot of small meals throughout the day and keeping your uh, food intake constant across the 24-hour period because those guys did a lot of exercises and you can't apply that to a person that doesn't. So, you know, they, they, they basically say this is a, a leftover from the 1990s bodybuilder culture that just influenced people to do the wrong thing if you're not doing volumes and volumes and volumes of exercise. Yeah, correct. And I do want to shout this out controversially, I guess. Um, I want everybody, you got to start using some common sense the magazines back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, whatever, they existed to make money. They made money for the publisher. They made money for the advertisers. Bodybuilders lied so many times about their routines, about their diet. You know, years later, you find out, okay, Schwarzenegger was on on gear. So was Columbo and this guy and that guy. Well, back then, no, that was never, ever, ever any mention of that, right? So 
you know, it. I feel bad for people who just don't, you know, who are genuinely like duped into this thinking that I can get a body like that with just eating my rice and my chicken, you know, and getting my, you know, getting 10 hours of sleep. You know, it, it, you're not, you're just not. Um, And don't get tricked into thinking um, like the silver age of bodybuilding, the fifties and the forties and fifties and sixties, maybe um, that they were all clean because they weren't. Okay. Uh, I didn't prepare for this, but I'm, the actual testosterone was was discovered that we have it, and mammals and humans have it in uh in the mid 1800s, okay, around 1850, 1845, 1850, I forget now. And I don't remember this guy's name, but I believe it was Pud Galvin. I used to know every all. I'm a baseball freak, you know. He's in the Hall of Fame. He played baseball in the late 1800s, and he took animal testosterone. They would get the testosterone for animals, dogs, you know, monkeys, whatever, right? Um, and he took it. So don't tell me other people didn't take it. And then in, like, 1935, I think, is when they finally made synthetic testosterone where we could create it. 35 or 39 or something. So this has been out there, okay? And and before that, they were taking desiccated liver, this, that, whatever they could. Um, and I'm not casting aspersions on anybody personally, because I don't I wasn't around back then, but I'm just saying this stuff existed. So just don't automatically think, like, you know, hey, John Grimmick, the legend, the god of you know, I mean, he's just phenomenal. He admitted to taking Devol. He's, I, I guess he didn't think it helped him any, but he admitted to taking it. And he was like the guru of York Barbell. So, you know, he didn't, he, you're not going to sit there and tell me only, only Grimmick took it. You know, shit, that was a premier weightlifting club in the United States of America. Yeah, I'll do you even one better. Like, <clears throat> I have a friend who works in the, or used to work in the uh, sports supplement industry and the the real formula to getting your brand noticed was to put steroids in it at the beginning that the government comes in and shuts it down but the word is out that your formula your product your supplement really works because it's got you know the secret stuff in it and there's been plenty of documented cases where this has been done by the government they analyzed it they found that it had anabolic steroids in whatever supplement and you know, people were taking it because it was giving them good results. Yo, that's, you know, that doesn't surprise me. It, it, it really doesn't. And and how much of the, let's say, protein powders or whatever it is you're taking, how much of it really works? You know, there's so much debate on that. Um, just as there's debate on how much did such and such a person actually lift. I'm not talking in competition. But, you know, like the old time strongmen or you know, other stories, you know, that you hear. Uh, I heard when uh, Vasily Alexiev, the great Olympic champion weightlifter uh, from, from the Soviet Union, when I was a kid, he was the man. He was the strongest man in the world, whatever. Um, and again, I don't 
actually remember the numbers off the top of my head, but in in uh, Imperial, I think he clean and jerk like it was either 565 or 576. I don't remember anymore. You can probably look it up. But there are stories that he was routinely working out uh, with 58, cleaning successfully, 580, 590, Ameri- you know, converted to, you know, they do it in kilos, but converted to American pounds in his training. Who knows, right? Um, but when I started my strength journey as a kid, I don't know what it was. I've talked about this before. I just wanted to be able to lift over my head. Okay. That's all I cared about. I never, I just, I don't know why it was something about it. And then when I, with the Radvon thing, when I heard that he got jumped and he picked by a couple guys, he picked the guy up over his head and threw him into the other guys. This to me was brute strength. I mean, this is, this is what I aspired for. And, you know, I wasn't physically built to, to lift, I mean, you know, like deadlift maybe, but because I got long arms, you know, it was hard, but I worked at it. Um, but I realized some point, guys, I can't read about what these old timers did because uh, on further inspection, it just didn't ring true. It just didn't seem truthful, okay? Um, yes, what they did in the Olympics or something like that, I can believe. Now, 40, 50 years later, there's a lot of um, doubt on what some quote-unquote legends lifted. What did they truly lift? It probably wasn't what they claimed. Who knows? So I just wanted to lift what I thought were numbers that I, you know, for me, it was lifting 300 pounds over my head. If I could lift 300 over my head, I'm as strong as I want to be. Uh, and then I realized when I was lifting, my arms were my strongest thing. So I wanted to start curling, you know, the moon. Um, so I just suggest everybody there out there listening or watching, you know, find out. I mean, don't worry about what, you know, Eddie, you know, what, what uh, Brian Shaw or Eddie Hall is lifting because you're not going to get you're not going to get there more than likely. OK, uh, just find something reasonable. You know, um, Maybe look at somebody from 1960 and just deduct 10% off their lift, okay? And that should give you a good good target. That's how I look at it. That's how I did it. And then sometimes I exceeded their lifts. Yeah, and uh, Brian, our friend Brian Deneve says that if you can't bench, uh, you know, double plates, then they'll fuck you up in prison. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know, that's another thing. The bench press has taken an awful lot of heat, right, through the years. And uh, I benched. You know that. You guys know that I was big on the bench. And that was a big disadvantage for me. I, I got super long arms and a shallow chest. So I took that more as a challenge. Yeah, but you know, my- your point your point will always seem to be that there's limited number of exercises that you can do to really uh, improve your pushing strength. You know, pushing yeah. and pulling is really what you use in wrestling, and bench is one of them. So it's not like there is a thousand different things to do to work on that type of strength. Yeah, and that's why I focused on the curls and the grip because Rybon had a grip second, and I've never met anyone with a grip like his. Um, but the arm strength, you know, like talking about Hackenschmidt when they're talking about his bear hugs and all this, you know, I, I know everything he did, all his lifts, they're impressive. But they're not like, I mean, I, myself and many, 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 many others 
surpassed all his lifts. And I never relied on any, like, gripping, unless it was a side bear hug, which he didn't do, you know, and you get in there and you're hooking him underneath the floating rib, and you're using that in a different kind of grip to submit. Um, I just wanted to have that kind of arm strength where I could make sure that I could control a person, especially in a frenetic situation, multiple assailants or, you know, where I, I, I you know, you don't have time to set up for a submission because it takes a while. In a street scenario, you know, strikes are the quickest, potentially the quickest end. So arm strength to me really comes into play. You're looking, the guy, the guy's got his leg, he sprawled on you, but you hooked his leg. You yeah, you got some lap muscles, but you get this grip right, you you curl them in, you can suck that leg back in. Your arms are really important. Let's 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 just be first and foremost. You gotta work on. So um with my bad back and stuff, my legs were never gonna be Paul Anderson, you know. So uh I just worked on what I could, my neck and my upper body. I think we talked about this a few times where we wanted to have you show a bunch of like wrestling and techniques that don't necessarily involve getting somebody down to the mat because it's not really what people think about. People think that wrestling, you got to take a guy down, and that's kind of like the amateur principles of, of doing a wrestling to finish with a takedown. But I've had, it was either you or somebody else put that side bear hug on me, and it's a world of trouble. Like you can yeah. feel your chest shift in weird ways because things are being attacked in ways that they're not designed to withstand. And there's other things that you've done from stand-up, like we did cover this in one of your seminars, the, the Half Nelsons. And then even this past weekend in the UFC, there was, um, it, this happened before, it's not that uncommon, but there was a, a standing um, you know, rear naked choke submission where the guy did put a little bit of oomph on it with his arms, but it was very effective. You know, the, the guy was dead set against going down to the ground and he paid for it. So that kind of a technique is also very realistic yeah i used a lot of that like with you i put the side headlock uh side the uh, the bear hug and then i hooked your leg a little bit to take away your maneuverability um but yeah the quarter nelson that's what i showed at the seminar not the half nelson but the quarter nelson and you can crank that and again when you have the arms even here's the beautiful thing about having arm strength you don't have to use your strength it seems when you're weaker people use strength Okay, the weaker people tend to use a higher percentage of their strength, if you follow my drift, whereas a strong person doesn't need, you know, when you have that technique, you're using very little of your strength. So you have all of this in reserve. Okay, it's like a savings account. So if stuff um, escalates, you're okay. Got to remember, man, on the street, you don't know who you're going to run up against. A drug addict, you know, that's hopped up on, you know, uh, uh, you know, bad drugs or you know, even steroids and shit where he's super strong. Um, and no matter what anybody tells you, I don't care who it is, if they if they tell you this, they're full of shit. No matter how much technique you have, somebody can power out of it. If you I mean you have to have a combination, you have to be absolutely balls on and you have to have the strength to combat that because if that was the case, if it was sheer technique and nothing else, five-year-olds would be able to submit power lifters with straight arm bars, and you know that's not the case, okay? Um, don't let people con you into that. Uh, strength plays a role. If we didn't have any strength at all, we'd be paralyzed. We wouldn't be able to move. 
Okay, so always try to be as um, as strong as you can to a degree. You know, there's diminishing returns. You know, like I tell people, you get to be too heavy, you're going to gas out too much muscle. You're not necessarily going to be muscle bound, but you're not going to have the the fight strength that you need. And there is a big difference, okay, between power lift strength and and fight strength, okay? Um, and, yeah, you want to have that 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 fight strength, man. And in this case, this uh, Kazakhstani guy um, did the same thing that you're describing, and maybe we can capture it in one of the seminars, but he did hook the leg. So by the time he put his arms around the guy's neck, he was in such a position that all the strength was directed at the guy's throat. So the, the tap came really quick. And there was like a lot more uh, power available because the mobility was gone. So, you know, to your point, it, it, it goes hand in hand. And, you know, it's not a commonly covered technique, but it was there. Like the, the guy was not willing to give up. He was hanging in there pretty tough. And then he utilized that advantage of being able to get around him and step, step over and hook the leg. Well, part of the problem, too, when you have instructors that don't really lift weights or they don't, they just, they're not serious about lifting. They lose out on the subtleties of your limb position. So, for example, and this is for people that can see this on YouTube. If I'm going to curl, let's say, a, a preacher bench, and my elbows are flared out like this when I'm curling, I'm going to work a different angle of my biceps than if my elbows are in tight, okay? Same with tricep extensions. If they're flared out or if they're in tight, okay? When you don't lift, especially for strength, where you can – figure out, well, I'm weaker this way or this way, whatever, um, that affects your application of any submission hold, okay? Because then you don't know. You're just doing it the way your coach told you, and you, you, you may have to adjust it depending on the person you're going up against. Because for me to choke Joe, or neck choke, is going to be different than if I choke uh, Brian Shaw, who's over 400 pounds. Because his neck's twice the size of Joe's, okay? So I got to make that kind of adjustment because you're not going to get this super tight thing. So I've got to look – I have to know intrinsically how how are my arms the strongest in that position or other positions. And that's why you don't know that unless you know your body. And the quickest thing that I can tell everyone, and I've said this from the very beginning, the further away from your torso, your arms and legs are your limbs, the weaker you're going to be. And if you don't start recruiting your whole body, and I've seen experts, you know, and they win. Don't get me wrong. They win. They win their tournaments. But I see experts still not applying certain holds as good as they could. They're still using improper muscle. They're not getting the best leverage. Now, when you combine leverage with great strength, that you become basically impenetrable, man. In my opinion, once you get knocked out. Yeah, and I think you're not doing yourself um, service if you have this narrow mindset that all the submissions can only happen from a predetermined set of positions. You know, like this this fight that I'm describing from the UFC. It was Kazakhstani guy that never went to the ground, and he got a rear naked choke. Versus, I got to get the back. I got to put both hooks in this was the rear, rear naked choke was more of a product of the boxing that happened that stand-up battle than than it was you know like 
jujitsu or anything that relies on you know the, the other predetermined set of steps. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because all of us have our own little bubble and we see things from our perspective. I, I stumbled upon a website on YouTube, very nice website, but you know, he's basically like I I, I you know making fun of other martial artists. But he the and that's fine, I get it and all that, whatever. I'm not big into that, but you know, I can see him critiquing, but the negative is he's critiquing it from a BJJ standpoint only. So doing that, I can critique and show the mistakes of what he's saying or what his expert is is, is claiming. You've got to understand that it depends on where you're coming from. If you're a striker, let's say a boxer, you're going to look at, well, how can I knock this guy out? And that's very effective, okay? Whereas a wrestler wouldn't wouldn't look at things like that. Both ways can be correct. The striker can be very effective doing it his way. The wrestler can be effective doing it his way. Um, when you're talking about a street scenario, grappling should necessarily be number one on your list. It should not because of multiple assailants or weapons or obstacles and so on. You know, you, you need to make this as quick and as efficient as possible, if if possible. Okay, that's why you really have to have good striking, I think. But my point is, we are all prejudiced in that regard, okay? We look at what we would do, okay, based on our knowledge. And the right way to approach this is to, to, to you know, just completely disenfranchise yourself from that and say, hey, I, how would a boxer handle this? Let's say you don't have any boxing experience. How would a boxer handle this? And then, therefore, you start your own journey of knowledge, okay? And maybe learn a little bit about boxing. Ask some questions or look at maybe some videos and broaden your horizons. Um, because street scenarios, man, they're, they're numerous. They're, they're, they're countless. And nobody has 100% um, corner on the right way or the pure truth. It's get as many perspectives. It, perspectives as you can um believe me uh joe what, what do you think i mean you've had some experience with you know kickboxing and, and striking type of stuff I, I always found it pretty uh interesting that like you know i've watched a lot of it i'm obviously not very experienced but um it's particularly devastating when these guys end up in a position where they're able to like circle to the side of their opponent and just unload um you know like that's kind of what happened when i was watching ufc like he he got into that type of position and then applied a submission well i'm not quite sure i mean yeah and i think to tony's point about you know if you can finish this on your feet you know the more power to you that you're you're a lot less at risk uh, you know, definitely in a self-defense situation. Um, and because takedowns are hard, you know, and they, they're not in, and there's a lot of risk there. Sometimes you could muff it and end up underneath the guy. Um, so, um, you know, that to me should be your backup plan or, and I always, I quoting Tony is like, you know, my favorite takedown is a left hook, um, quoting Tony back to himself, but, um, uh, you know, so, yeah, I think um, 
you've got to, you know, again, look at the big picture and, and why you're training and what are you training for and, and not get confused as to, I mean, it's weird because I was just watching kind of contrary. I was watching a friend sent me a video and I don't know if you um, saw these, this fight, uh, Martin, it was, I had never heard of this before. It was Demetrius Johnson and he was fighting, fighting some high level Muay Thai fighter. And the, the way they did the fight was the first round was Muay Thai, Muay Thai rules. And then the second round was MMA rules. And um, it was conversely where, and Demetrius Johnson, who's a, you know, one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time, very lightweight. Uh, he had enough striking to be able to survive the Muay Thai champion. So he was able to like go toe, not toe to toe with him, but he was able to, you know, maintain with him. Uh, but then once the rules changed, the Muay Thai fighter was trying to evade him, trying to stay at a distance. He changed his game a little bit, but at a certain point he couldn't resist and he was going in close for strikes. And that was all it took. He was able to, you know, once he was, once Demetrius was able to get him into a clinch down, they went and it was over for him, you know, like, so he, he could, didn't, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm saying the converse argument of like, um, you know, there is no one size fits all. You have to be well-rounded. Um, you have to train all those things because you can be, you know, the greatest striker in the world and yeah, just the right set of circumstances. Well, in this case, I mean, it was definitely like, you know, these are trained fighters. And so he was definitely, um, you know, you're, you're just that much closer to getting in a clinch um, and he couldn't finish. Now, obviously like I said, Demetrius Johnson is, is a fairly decent striker himself. He's not a, a champion Muay Thai fighter not per se, but um, you know, it's just kind of that reminder that um, uh, you can't rely on one, aspect of the game at all well you're also you're also talking about a sporting event where you know the rules ahead of time and you can train and prepare for that in the world in the street world the you know you you don't know you don't you're not even prepared for this okay it may be a day where you got you just got done lifting weights so you can barely keep your hands up or your back went out or just whatever um and again you want to take the path of least resistance, but I've always, I always, this is now my opinion. Uh, in any kind of encounter, my number one thought is getting, how do I get out of here? How do I get out of this? Okay. Um, and even if that means beating, beating him to either within an inch of his life or taking his life. Okay. Now I'm, I got, I still got to get out of here. Okay. I don't want to hang around for, Everybody else, or you know, all the all the rigmarole afterwards. So I don't definitely don't ever want to put myself in a position where I cannot get out of where I'm at. Okay, so I would never, like you say, Joe, if the guy's three fifty, I'm not going to shoot in on him. You know, and maybe he, maybe he wrestled, maybe he played football. Who you don't know this shit, right? And now you're stuck underneath, and you got to get out fast because here comes other people. Um, this is how it goes down. In the streets, many, many more times than not. Okay, and I, I was just cognizant of this from day one. The gang, you know, the gang, multi, multi people. Um, I don't, I don't want that. Now, I, I don't know how else I can be clear that you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're, you're trapped. You, you did it to yourself. That's all. I, you know, that's where striking and footwork on the feet, keeping it on the feet, boom, 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 land your punches or you know. Calm the shit down, and then see if you can get out. Get out. I think to Joe's point, it doesn't always have to be uh, 
you know, uh, all American wrestler that's fucking up your your shot. It could be just a fat guy and you're tripping over the curb or there is a loose rock on the ground or something like that. I, I think in your case, Tony, like your background is so uniquely um, American and so uniquely um, targeting boxing that your footwork is very well positioned for everything like what i mean by that is whenever you show us something you know in the seminar we we've done this and you've done this even over zoom when i'm just working the bag um you have a very conscious way of describing what happens at the end of this punch or at the end of this action where you end up and where you're positioned to do the next thing and we've talked about this before like in the context of like dirty boxing tricks you know hitting somebody's kidneys you end up in that position. It's not accidental. It's not opportunistic. It's predetermined. Yeah, there's patterns. Like when you're running out a game of pool and you're playing position on the next shot, um, to use the pool analogy, if, if you're playing eight ball and you want to try to make a tricky combination to win the game, or nine ball, you want to make a tricky combination to win the game quick, or do you want to try to run it out? Um and that's that's what it is here. Yes, for example, using the uh, the, the kidney thing um, or the liver, uh, which is a great shot on the guy's right side. So yeah, I'm I'm not worrying about this being a boxing match where we're going to go a few rounds. Yeah, I want to get into those positions as quickly as I can. So if it was a true boxing match, I might not do that because I'm going to try to score punches, maybe wear you down a little bit, um, and use like a war of attrition, but not in a fight fight. There's, there's no such thing as attrition. That should never enter your, your, your lexicon. You should get this thing over with, you know, infinite pronto. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a subtle move too. It's not like making gigantic steps, you know, where the person sees you coming. Yeah, it's simple. Uh, and if you're slick, you, you could be throwing punches purposely to get this guy to block. You know, like, so let's say I'm throwing, like, wild, purposely now, wild hooks to get the guy to block, but turn like this a little bit. You see? Now, look, I've so instead of my kidney being way behind me, I've now thrown a shot that makes you go like this. And, man, all I do is step out and, and do, like, a shovel hook. You're done. I, I landed that kidney. Now I'm going to come for the groin with my knee or something or elbows. That's yeah, it's shit like that. Um, it's it's being unorthodox, but it's not. But you're always using science. So what difference does it make, guys? If I throw the perfect right hand to your chin to try to knock you out, or if I throw the perfect right hand to let's say your shoulder to try to set something else up, you don't know where I'm going with this, and it's up to my creativity and my my um, toolbox. How many how many how many tools do I have with me that I can do this with? So, yeah, I, I'm not bound. I guess what I'm saying is I'm not bound by strict boxing um, orthodoxy or methodology because boxing has a strict set of rules. I'm not, I'm not bound by that strict set of rules, I guess. So, uh, and, and none of us are really in a street fight unless we put ourselves in that position. And sadly, some people are so rule-oriented, and we've seen it, all of us have seen it in gym, just gym workouts, 
where they can't get out of that rule set and, you know, they get themselves in jeopardy. Yeah, like attrition in Chicago means somebody shows up with a gun. So that's not a real good option for for anything. But, you know, even more like what I what I find to be very informative, and maybe I'm trying to tease some videos out of you at some point, but, uh, you know, there is always like a logical set of steps that you um, you teach to like show how you end up in the correct position for the next thing and the next thing. It's never okay. like reactive. Yeah. And that's where it really comes together. Of course, it takes a lot of practice, but there is an end point. I mean, well, an okay. end game. Let's talk about that. There's two elements to what you just said. The one element is how I move, which I should have 100% control over. The other element is how does he move, okay? Now, the opponent has free will or does he, okay? My deal is to, without you knowing it, take your free will away from you. In any fight that I have, and that's where the control comes into play. That's why I say I'm all about control. I'm not, I don't want to hope you make a mistake. If you do and I capitalize on it, fine, but I, I don't bank on that. It's all about control. And people don't fully understand what that word means. Okay? I don't even have to put my hands on you to control you. Okay? Um. And and that's the art that you, and it's not psychic or anything like, you know, mystical and shit. It's just about body mechanics or even psychological ploys, okay, to get that control going. So in the case that you're talking about how I always know where I'm going to end up or how, you know, I'm ready for the follow-up. Yeah, I already know where I'm going to end up, but I've got to make sure that you end up where I need you to be. Okay, so let's just say, Martin, no matter what move I make on you, your response is going to be to, be, to run backwards five steps or, or six steps. Run away. Well, naturally, I don't have a follow-up to that. So I can't allow that shit to happen, you know. I, I've got to set this up so running away for you in this instance is not is not a viable option. I'm making it kind of dramatic for the people that are, 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 are listening because um, there are that subtleties that, that you have to do, and it's – it's it's not something that I mean you'd have to videotape me just doing it, okay? Because you can't set up for this. Like Joe, when a couple of weeks ago at the seminar, when Joe brought a, a collie stick because he wanted to split my head open, he wanted to see the disarms. I'm like, just let's just do it. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do. Let's do it. Everybody on YouTube, they they tell you what they're doing, and everybody knows it. It's compliant. You're working with each other. It's a it's 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 a work match, and you don't even know it. And they're doing it at half speed. Joe and I didn't go half speed. We went full blast. Joe didn't get hurt. But, you know, you can address that. Well, that was That's always a, um, a moment of some minor dread when you're like, hey, I want to work this technique. And you're like, well, I can't do this slow. We're going to go for it. <laughs> I'm like, okay, it's going to be a – brace yourself, Joe. It's going to get – but, yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought that was really good, actually, because um, you know it definitely rung true the, the 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 time you know you have to be able to the minute you sense that this is what's going to happen, you can't hesitate or wait, 
you know, the waiting is what's going to, you know, if you're waiting for me to execute, um, you're already behind the curve, especially if I'm armed. Um, and so, uh, yeah, actually it's part of, uh, I've been using your visual visualization techniques, Tony, and that's one of the techniques I've been working on in my visualization, because I was, that's something you can't train a lot with a lot of people. Um, uh, but I think, yeah, I think we hope, I hope we do that with more weapons and we do more street type stuff like that. Um, you know, just kind of trying to pick your brain. It's like, you know, someone who's been in these violent situations and has that broad perspective, what do you, what do you do? Because, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I would say traditional responses to that. And, um, you know, uh, I think everybody's mileage might vary with that, depending how well it is. So I want, I want to see what you, what you brought to the table. And it was definitely very eye opening for that. So. Well, I just don't believe in so many of these things that I see ABC paint by numbers, because it doesn't work like that in real life. Um, and, and these people that make these videos, they get a million views and 100,000 subscribers for this garbage. It's crap. It's absolute crap. And they don't, they're not trying to pull a fast one on anybody. They don't know any better because it does work the way they're doing it with a completely compliant opponent. The, the training partner, you know what the training partner is going to do because nine times out of 10, you're telling them, all right, come at me with an overhand down, you know. Come on, man. You're calling the shots here. You better pull this off. Just do it when you don't know what the hell he's going to do to you. Then let's see how you react. Okay? Um, and you don't, you know, and I get why they do it. I guess I get it. I get it because they're, they're trying to instruct. I'll do this, you know, block here and come underneath and pull them down and this and that. Um, man, it's just. I've seen some literally you open up a can of worms with that because where do you stop the ridiculousness at? Okay. And even I've seen some champions that they're, but when they show their move, great, this is going to work great on a, on a mat where the guy is not really trying to bite you or gouge you or, or go for any, you know, you're, you're, you're not to something. It's going to happen and your technique will fail. I talked to William, William, in California about this. So for example, if somebody's got me in a lock, it don't matter what it is, I'm on my back and his arm happens to be right across my chin or right underneath it. I'm not going to worry maybe about getting out of a lock. Maybe I can withstand that lock for a minute. I'm just going to move his arm just slightly so it's in my teeth and I can bite his fingers. Or if it's the case of his head, I'm just going to move his head just a little bit so I can poke and rip his eyeball out. Okay. And this is the problem with grappling. And this is where it's going to get people hurt, if not killed, in street scenarios because they think about countering the technique with a, well, I don't know, eye gouging is a technique, so I don't know what the word is. But they, you know, they want to counter this submission hold, you know, in a flamboyant way, okay? Well, I'm going to do this and it's it. Just frigging bite them. Or stick your eyeball, whatever it is, okay? It, or it could be a punch, or it, it could be something. But you have to look at the simplest, quickest, and most vulnerable way to get out of that because you may not have time, okay? Um, and that's where I think grappling, um, what happened here to my computer? Grappling can get you in trouble when you try to make things too complicated. Okay, you cannot afford complexity, and especially people. If I'll be, I'll be frank. If anybody listening or watching does drugs, 
or drinks a lot and you're drunk or you're high or whatever it is, you know, your, your reactions aren't going to be there, you know, so you're going to have to really not rely on all of this, these, you know, it's got to be instantaneous shit, gross motor skills, not this, you know, fine motor thing. Okay. I got to get my elbow inside and I got to do the four steps. Forget it. It's too late. The guy should have already broke your arm. So, um, that's just my, that's always been my take on it. And I know this isn't for everybody. Okay. But you got to have that kill switch. Uh, and I don't mean kill like murder, but you have to have that kill switch, that, that thing that can end it outside of their rules. Okay. That their rules, meaning their mindset. Okay. Enough of my speech. But at the same time, I, I think there is like a set of steps that you usually, at least, you know, again, when I'm hitting the bag, that I find to be very useful because they're fundamentally uh, sound and they, they get you to that next next point in the sequence. Like, you know, when you throw how to throw the hook so that you're protected because, you know, he might not counter it, but you want to be doing it the right way. So in case the counter does happen, the things are in place. To give yourself a higher level of protection. Okay, yes, I'm trying to get everybody to under, to understand their fundamentals of their safe zones. Let's talk about that hook, or it could be any punch. Contrasting it to boxing, straight boxing. In straight boxing, if I throw a punch, I don't care who it's against, and I miss, or it, not that effective, and he clobbers me pretty good, but not enough to knock me down. Well. The next thing I'm going to do is probably, if I can't do any footwork because, you know, my head's spinning, I'm going to tie up, okay? And that's safe. I'm going to tie up, and then a ref's going to break us up, and that's going to take X amount of seconds for me to clear my mind. I I don't have that ability in a street fight. You can't think that you have that ability in a street fight. I don't have that ability if he does knock me down. I can't risk a punch and get knocked down knowing, okay, well, I, I got 10 seconds to get back up to my feet. All of that shit is off the table. You can't look at things like that in a street fight. So I err on the side of caution, but not defensively, meaning cowering or not, not doing anything offensive. All of my offense offense is cautious offense. So I'm not going to put myself in great jeopardy. And I'm going to be able to transition if I have to immediately from any kind of strike into a grappling uh, thing. I don't look at it differently. I don't look at, you know me, I've talked about this a million times. It's all one to me. Fighting, it don't matter if it's on the feet or on the ground, where some people have that switch. I'm in striking mode, now I'm going into grappling mode. Uh, I don't don't really think I have that. I do it when I'm teaching, but... So, yeah, it's just, guys... I mean, I know it means a lot to win a tournament, and I know it can mean a lot of money, and it can mean this and that, but in the scheme of things, it's nowhere near as important as losing your life. And I've personally known people who've lost their life in street scenarios. That, to me, is is key. Don't get killed or crippled um, in a street fight, okay? My mother knew somebody who... I don't even know if he's still alive. He'd be my mom's age. He got, you know, he was biker gang, you know, in Cleveland and got shot, paralyzed his whole life. Okay. 
Don't know if he's still alive. I mean, you don't you don't want this. You don't want these things. So you you want to try to avoid that at all costs. So yeah, um, I can look at Mike Tyson, who I just man, the guy was amazing, and you could you could literally look at that and look at a fight of his without ever even bashing him because at one point he was as good as it gets, right? But you could say, well, okay, here's here is a vulnerability. Let's just play this out. Here's a vulnerability, okay? Now, do you think you, me, Joe, or anybody in, in MMA's history could outbox Tyson? No. So you're not saying it coming from a bashing standpoint, but you could say, okay, this this is where he's vulnerable. Um, if I'm if I'm saddled up on you, mounted up on you, and I'm going for some front choke and I'm down, somebody could watch it and say, well, okay. But Tony's vulnerable from behind because his head can get bashed in. <clears throat> Absolutely. The guy's 100% right. So you got to start looking at things. And getting back to that, that guy's YouTube channel, um, when you only look at it from a sport, Brazilian jiu-jitsu standpoint, or a boxing standpoint, or a catch wrestling standpoint, or anything, um, that's not the way to make a judgment call on that. Okay? Um, and really, he should be bringing in experts from other styles. Bring me on. Bring a boxer on. Bring a tie boxer on and ask them, how would they handle this? Or what would you do here in this, in this instructor's uh, demo? Um, get a broader picture. You, so that's how I picked up a lot, guys. I saw fights. I saw street shit. Over and over and over. I was victimized. My grandmother was victimized. I was, I witnessed things. I saw it. I saw this shit. Um, and that was my, um, my classroom, my test tube. I know how things really go down. Matter of fact, I'm going to tell you guys something. One of my earliest memories, I have a vague recollection of um, some stuff, I think, when I was really, really little like before 1968 or 69. But I remember 1972. I think I was still eight years old. No, I think I was seven, about to turn eight. The, the Munich Olympics and the uh, the terrorists that, that shot and killed and blew people up. Uh, it was big news in Cleveland. Well, it was big news worldwide, but it was especially big news in Cleveland. The reason being, there was a Israeli weightlifter named David Berger, who was born and raised in Cleveland, Shaker Heights, the home of Paul Newman. David Berger, at that point, was representing Israel. I, I can get into that in a second. But he did not live, he, he was raised not all that far from where I lived, in my neighborhood. Joe knows this, because we took the, the tours. He didn't live that far, Joe, from like Little Italy. Okay, Shaker Heights is starting to get out that direction. Um, anyway, um, so David Berger was a, a lawyer, and he had won um, some, I think he won some NCAA championships or something. Went to New York, uh, ended up coming in winning gold, or I think he came in fourth in the nation. So he wasn't going to make the Olympics here. But he won them, um, the Maccabee Games. Uh, and so he figured he's going to go to Israel. 
practice law. And he tried out for the Israeli Olympic team and he made it weightlifting. And he was like a light heavyweight. I think when he was in America, he was like a middleweight. So that was because I was into strength even back then. So I'm like, wow, for a strong man like him to lose his life like that, gunfire, I get it. But what did that what did that tell me at seven, eight years old? The strongest men in the world can get gunned out. Okay, so there's limits to what your strength can protect you from. Um, it's 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 a shame uh, that that's, that stuff happens, and so that stuck with me all these years later. Don't know why I brought that up, other than the fact that you know if you if you really read about that, there was I believe it was an Israeli Olympic wrestling coach that lost his life because he tried to disarm a gunman and if i'm getting this correct i i thought that another wrestler was able to escape but i think that's why um david berger originally got shot he didn't get killed right away um it was during that melee and he he lived for a while they they ended up killing him in a helicopter um they shot up the helicopter and killed everybody on there but he survived that, I think. He, he got shot in the legs, and then they threw a grenade and blew it up, and that, that's what did him in. But, um, it says he died from smoke inhalation. But now the amazing part is you got everything else absolutely dead on nuts. <laughs> it's well, all see, right. I can remember shit from 1920, but I can't remember shit from 20 minutes ago. You know, uh, yeah, yeah was he some, was... some kind of a wrestling coach that was, uh, got shot in the face trying to disarm these guys. And, and this guy was... Uh, um, you know, the, the, the smartest weightlifter in the world. Oh, yeah? <laughs> well, he wasn't that smart if he ended up in, you know, yeah, it's a shame. Um, but those things made a mark on me because he was buried. I remember them when he got buried back in Cleveland. He didn't get buried in Israel. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a memorial in Cleveland. It says so on the Wikipedia. Yeah. And where, does it say where? Uh, no, it just says it's the David Berger Memorial in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, I thought he got – it might be uh, – there's a big cemetery on Mayfield Road, um, which may be where he was buried because that's not far from Shaker Heights. I don't know. I, yeah, I didn't it, scroll far enough. You're absolutely right. Mayfield Cemetery in his hometown of Cleveland. Yeah, that's it, Mayfield Road, because that's Joe. That's where Little Italy was. Murray Hill is Mayfield mm-hmm. Road, okay? Um that's where we had dinner. Remember, Joe? Sure, yeah. That was, that was a cool little area. Oh, yeah. They they say that's the number one Little Italy in America, man. It's cool. Um, but, yeah, those things leave, leave a mark on me because he was a young man, late 20s or something. And, you know, I just, I mean, granted, he never would have made anything. Weightlifting wasn't his future. Let's get it. You know, but law probably was. But who wants to get snuffed out? So when I see these test techniques being done that are improper, I'm glad that people call it out, like this guy's YouTube channel. But don't call it out with other techniques that may or may not be bullshit, too. Or just because just remember, there's a time and a place for everything. And there's a lot of people who have broader experience, maybe not in like a Shotokan tournament, you know, but broader experience in general, and you should really take their, um, you know, take their input. And I, and I, 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 
I'm not bashing this guy's channel. I think it's a great channel. I just think he needs to cut loose and start getting other experts in from different styles so they can critique. And it, all it can do is help him get better and his followers on that YouTube channel, because he's got a lot of followers over, I think, like 100,000 plus or something like that, um, get them to see other other aspects and be like, oh, wow, that's good. If you want, I can tell you who he is, Joe. You can reach out to him to come on our podcast, but I don't know if he'd be receptive to that because it just seems to me that he's kind of like. I could try. Yeah. And I mean, he may be just strictly BJJ and that's, you know, his, and that's fine. If that's the way it is, it's no big deal. You know, you're talking about athletes getting shot and there's, there's, uh, and combat athletes getting shot and killed. Uh, what do you mean by combat athletes? Uh, wrestlers, grapplers, um, BJJ guys. Um, yeah, I think basically, you know, those are the ones that come to my mind. Uh, Boxers. Right. Um, I mean, to, to me, that's the umbrella term for, cause I don't, you know, a lot of people like to just call them sports, but I, I think it gives a, I think, yeah, combat sports is a little bit more accurate, but it's, I guess it's to the broader thing about, be aware of the rule sets and the limitations of those rule sets. And, uh, you know, Dave Schultz, right. He was uh, shot and killed uh, the DuPont thing, right. Uh, the Fox catcher deal. Um, and, you know, one of the greatest wrestlers in the world. Um, and I, I don't know all the details. So I, you know, I don't want to misspeak or whatever, but obviously um, the DuPont guy was nuts and they knew something was wrong with him. But because of financial situations or whatever, they they kind of stuck around at a very dangerous situation. I don't think they realized. Obviously, they didn't realize how dangerous it was going to be. But, you know, you can be the greatest wrestler in the world. And if you're not realizing you're in a dangerous situation with someone who's unstable, um, you know, yeah, to, to your point, you can be the strongest man in the world. You can be the greatest wrestler in the world. Um, but if someone's – yeah – I used to know Mark Schultz, so let's reach out and touch him. Touch, you know, let's get him on the podcast. Um, I'm not certain he'd want to discuss that scenario, but oh, no, yeah, I wouldn't want to. Bring um, if Martin's on the YouTube, or is Mark, if Martin's on the internet, look up Trevor Burbick because I believe it was Trevor Burbick who was a heavyweight champ that got beaten to death in a street fight by pipes to the head. Okay, which happened to my friend in school. It happened to his father. You know, on the streets of Cleveland. Okay, beaten to death with a pipe to the head. I thought was it was an trouble. axe, but I'll check. Well, it was an axe, whatever it was. Look look if it was Burbick, it could have been someone else. No, you're right. It was a steel pipe. <laughs> yeah, right. See, so this guy was the heavyweight champion of the world. Let's put it in perspective. I, I got to use MMA as an example. There has never been a striker as good as Burbick in MMA. And Burbick got killed in a street fight because he didn't. Whatever happened, we don't know. I don't know. Was he straight? Was he drunk? Was what? Whatever. Was he sick, or was he? Was he? You know, just overwhelmed, right? Ambushed, right? So you've 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 got to you can't rest on your laurels, looking down at your pants, saying, "Hey, I'm a black belt, or I'm this or that, or I, you know, I'm the, you know, I I I was on the Olympic boxing team or some shit." What is it? That this is a street fight, pal. This is a whole different story, you know, and um. Yeah, there, there's, so there, there's just many, many, many stories 
um, um, uh, Al Bummy Davis. Okay, you guys never heard of him. Al Bummy Davis was a was a fighter out of New York, probably in the forties, maybe the fifties, but I think it was the forties. And whatever, you know, he wasn't a champion, but he ended up beating some local hero. I forgot if it was in an Irish neighborhood or an Italian fighter. But long story short, Bummy Davis was in a bar. It got robbed. Bummy's like, not on my watch. And Bummy attacked the guy. Bummy got shot. The guy ran outside. Bummy ran outside after him more and died on the, died on the sidewalk, I believe. And, um, oh, that great writer, I think it was Grantland Rice, wrote a little poem about him. And it, it won some award about how Bummy was a, maybe a bum in the boxing world, but, you know, he, he saved people's lives. It cost him his life, but that, that's a hero. Um, it doesn't hit home to a lot of people, okay? But a street fight, there's, this is why I don't like the term, and I'm not, I love you, Joe, you're, you know that. I don't like the term combat sports because it's not combat to me. It is absolutely not combat. It's a bullshit thing. It's not combat. Okay. Al Bummy Davis faced combat that day. Um, Trevor Burbick faced combat that day. Weapons and, you know, your life is on the line. Now, granted, in any sport, an accident can happen and you could die. But by that token, you know, being a telephone lineman would be combat. He's a combat lineman because you could fall off the, the, you know, you get electrocuted or something. So to me, I think when you when we use those terms, it diminishes what real true combat is. Well, um, I guess, and to my defense, or what I'm trying to think of is that people will dis- dismiss or diminish uh, sports like wrestling or boxing or jujitsu or what have you or MMA because they call it a. I've seen the signs up actually as I drive. You know, like we teach martial arts, not sport. Um, and you know, cause they're, I don't know, they're like kind of equating it to, I don't know, badminton or other, you know, pe- there's, there's non-contact, maybe I should call it contact sports. Uh, there I you go. I'll go with that. Okay. Yeah. Full con full contact sports. Um, you know, um, maybe that's the terminology, but there, it's definitely like one-on-one work against each other, you know? Uh, so yeah, maybe that's the terminology, but, um, Anyways, that, that's my only point is that I think conversely people will, yes, these things are sports, but, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be dismissed because it's a, a quote unquote sport either. Absolutely correct. You know, and but all of that has to be modified. Everything has to be, you know, mentally and physically modified. And um, and you want you want to take from those sports, if you want to call it, which may not have even been actually. In some of those instances, sports took from the real combat to become a sport, okay? Um, But we need to revert back to real, you know, like all in, like life or death shit, Um, where you're leaving the gym or the training area, which doesn't, shouldn't be um, relegated to a gym alone, um, psychologically shook. You know, like, damn, man, shit. 
I could have lost my life. Um, that is what needs to be done. You know, you need to be put to that brink. So, you know, and it's a balancing act because you don't want to traumatize somebody to the point where they have an issue psychologically. But if you don't, if they have to use something on the street and it doesn't go exactly right, that what can happen there? Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer because I was raised with the fear of death pretty much every time I worked out. I mean, I was not just by Rodbot. Just getting to this place and coming home was scary without him there. You know that. You've seen the, the area. That was a risk for a kid, you know, to, to go. Uh, so it was always tension, tension, tension. Um, that's why I, I'll admit it, it. It's I have lasting. I got problems from it. I got lasting issues. That's why I don't play around. I, I have practical jokes. That's how I relieve my tension. But you know, otherwise, I'm, I get serious. So I didn't mean to yell at you about the combat sports. It's just that no, you know, I didn't tell them because no, I've been attacked. Yeah, no, it's 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 worth having a discussion. I think that's where this some of the value of this podcast is, is the back and forth like that. So I didn't take it personally at all. No, uh, no, never do. Never do. It's just I'm trying to change the dynamic out there in the martial art world because it's just gotten so much into the sports, which is fine, man. It's entertainment. And there's some phenomenal athletes and everything. Who doesn't want to see that, of course? Um, but there's just so much bullshit uh out there too when it comes to reality. Uh and, you know, and another thing you have to face facts, um, for the majority of these great athletes, MMAs or whatever, this is full time for them. Okay. They, they, they're, they're, they got sponsors or they, they, they got a team. Uh, most people don't have that. I never had that. You don't have that. Martin doesn't have that. I bet you the 99% of our followers don't have that. I know my Tri-C people don't have that. They they either work out with their family or a small group. Um, so they've got to know techniques that are going to be effective um, and not try to beat them, beat a professional, let's say, at their own game. It's going to be kind of hard. Um, like you're never going to, Martin, you're never going to be able to box down in your basement good enough to challenge, you know, Klitschko. What? I'm I'm gonna quit. <laughs> That's the case. Come on. Plus, Klitschko's getting up there in age. Maybe he, something bad will happen to him, and I'll have a chance. Well, we'd like to see you in Ukraine. That's for sure. <laughs> He's over yeah. there. Yeah, it's pretty exciting over there. Well, you know, I, somebody told me one. I don't know if it was that William that I talked to, but somebody had said uh, that you know that, that I have a knowledge of you know he doesn't see it from anybody on the internet regarding like the older boxers and the the tricks that they did. And it's weird because I was raised by my grandparents, as everybody knows. So some of his, all, the majority of his friends, World War II era box. But I met people from World War One that time. I met a guy that went all the way back to, to like, right after, I might either, either, either bare knuckles or, you know, right after that. Because um, he, Mickey was like, uh, 80 something he was like let's call him 90 when i was like 20 so he was like 70 years older than me so he was born in the 1890s so he from the 1915s and i okay 
he he was boxing and he knew those, you know. So he told me stories of John L. Sullivan and Corbett. You know, I think he met these guys. They may have already been older. Um, so I got some insight into how they boxed back then. Uh, enough to realize that I need to stick with the more modern style because it was more developed. You know, we, we were on the right path. Um, it was interesting to hear his training stuff because uh, they trained completely differently. Pretty much everybody had a wrestler in in training camp, it seemed. But, but yeah, boxing used to be our martial art in America, wrestling to a degree. But, man, everybody boxed a little. It's like everybody played baseball a little, you know, but society changes. And this is maybe a topic for another uh, podcast, but I, I always bemoan the fact that you there's very little available on the internet from like generally there's like hundreds of boxing fights going on every week and you'd be lucky to have visibility to two or three of them and I, i'd like to be able to research some of these guys how they develop how they progress there's no service that will let you have access to that these these fights even though they may be videotapes are then lost forever nobody's monetizing them nobody's doing anything with them there's no service that has you know um give me the fights from last week in Canada, you know, they're not worth any money on pay-per-view anymore. So why can't I see them? See how they train, what they do. I don't know, but I can tell you that you got to remember something. Boxing is a business from both ends, you know, from the promoter and so on and, and the fighter too. And in a way, boxing has a parallel to major league baseball, to pitching, to a pitcher in major league baseball. Let me explain. This is my theory on it. If you guys remember Kerry Wood, you know, when he when he struck out 20 and shit, you know, Kerry probably did some damage to his arm and that game. But pitchers, whatever you see a pitcher do, pitcher can probably do a little more than what you're seeing, okay? But they don't because they know they can't throw their arm out, all right? They want to elongate their career. And that's the same with boxing. Okay, boxers, most boxers, I mean, boxers that have aspirations, um, they're going to approach boxing for like, I don't want to, I don't want to end my career in, you know, now. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to approach this differently. It's rare that you'll see a boxer open up, up, okay, unless he really gets the guy on, on Queer Street, okay. Um, so, I agree. It's great to see how they progress. But unless you're in a war like Ali Frazier, because those guys are on the brink of death, um, you may never really know the true capabilities of, of what a boxer has. Like Floyd Mayweather, he was so great defensively. Um, to my recollection, I don't ever remember him really being on the way out. Like, like it's over. He's going to lose for sure. And coming back from that. Um, it may have happened, and I just don't remember, or I, I didn't see the fight. Um, but you you don't always get to see what the metal is, M-E-T-T-L-E, of a fighter, especially when they're so great and so dominant, until later, at like the tail end of their career, when, okay, now you know they have heart, but they just don't have the skill anymore because, you know, the ability, I should say, because, you know, they're, they've aged. So. Um, 
Yeah, it, it's like sometimes I don't want to see like old timers fighting. Like when I heard Holyfield took that fight with Belford on five days' notice or whatever it was, I don't want to see this. I don't want I don't want to see Holyfield like this. This is a joke. I saw the clips. Didn't even look like these punches were really landing. I think one did, but I mean it looked like they were being blocked or something or missing and they stopped the fight. Good. I, I don't I don't want to see Holyfield do that. You he know, doesn't either. He said he'll never do it again. Let's hope. Let's hope he keeps his promise. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's sad because it was a setup. I mean it was a farce, um, and you know it was kind of like an exhibition. And you know, Belford did the right thing. Just come out with a flurry, you know, um, and yeah, obviously, and they stopped it, which is which is great. But the boxing has become. A carnival, really. Uh, I, I'm still not over that McGregor fight. That That's really turned my stomach. Nothing personal against Conor McGregor. It's just that there are fighters, boxers, who spent their whole career trying to build a career to get a fight with, with Mayweather for a payday or whoever for a payday. And it didn't happen, right? And Mayweather carried him. Um, yeah, that just again nothing personal to the guy. He got lucky. He took it, man. If they offer me that kind of money. I'm in, you know, um, for sure. But it's not fair to the other guys. You get my drift? Yeah, this is this was not the pinnacle of uh, Mayweather's career. It was probably the pinnacle of the money he made. I saw. Um, I don't even know if I should. I got to remember his name now. Uh, oh boy, I can picture him too. Uh, uh, I can't remember. He was a. He was a. Very good champion. Jerry Sigler and I went and saw him. Bobby Hitch was promoting, and he fought a local fighter, Tony LaRosa. And um, I can't believe I can't remember his name. Um, and Tony won, which I don't want to offend Tony LaRosa, but, you know, this the outcome would have been different <laughs> if that fighter was in his prime. Um, the fight happened here in Chicago, Rosemont, um, at the hotel, not at the convention center. Um, and I, I think his name began with the letter E. So I, I can't remember. I can't believe I can't remember this. Um, Is it Iran Barkley? Because I think we talked. That's about it. Yeah, that. Iran Barkley. It wasn't an E. It was I. Yeah, Iran Barkley. Yeah. And I didn't want to see Iran like that. Yeah. Uh, well, Tony La Rosa actually had a bunch of fights against other big names. I mean, he got. He got to get knocked out by Vladimir Klitschko, but I'm going to avenge that. We're working on that. By the time, yeah, well, I'm seven, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Larosa, or uh, yeah, Larosa from I think Melrose Park. Um, he had a big rivalry with Lenny Lapaglia. I knew Lenny a little bit. Um, Lenny passed away. Uh, um, but Melrose had a fighter from many, many years ago, uh, Rocky DeFazio. I think we talked about him once on this podcast and uh rocky i guess ended up becoming a fireman or something but he ran into a bus saw denny hoyer uh and you know he had never lost a fight until that one and and denny denny was an old pro man was a tricky guy and denny then he did what denny had to do you know and and I, I don't i think rocky had one more fight after that or something i don't know but that was about the end of it um uh, but yeah, you know what, guys? Here's the thing: street fighting 
I've said it before, any of us, we're just a moment away from losing our life. Anything can happen. We could slip, we could get hit by a modest punch, lose our balance, hit our head, and we're dead. Um, anything can happen, okay? Anything. We could we could get stuck, shot. It doesn't matter. Um, so you have to overcome the limitations of your style, and you have to almost rise above your own style, no matter what that's like me. I, I learned how to strike. First, actually, it wasn't like I researched all this. I learned to strike before, but I was told not to give it up. Okay? Um, and through it all, I've, I've trained so many jujitsu guys, I can't, I've lost count. I see some of the things they do. I got an idea of what's going on here and how they fight. Um, everybody needs to branch out. And, and, and not like abandon so much, but just be at least a little more cognizant. Um, and I think everybody needs to get hit by a, a trained boxer. I really do. I mean, maybe not in the head so much. You don't want damage, but you need to get hit and get hit repeatedly um, just so you respect it. Okay? Um, like these guys that show gun disarms. They've never been shot. <laughs> All right? Get shot, and I guarantee you your whole perspective on disarms will change. You don't know until you get, you know, you you think it's all easy peasy. It's not. Anything can go wrong. Well, we're in Chicago, so there's a good chance that might happen. Yeah, right. I know. Uh, on that happy note, I'm going to sign off because my internet's kind of flaky. So, um... all right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna sign off too. Then, Martino, I'll see you this week after my surgery for uh, your training. Yes, I'll check in with you. All right, check in with the flights on Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we got to get this thing cooking. You bet. All right, see you, Martin. Okay, no, Joe, I hope. Well, you know, um, we talked. I think this was a very good podcast. Uh, the 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 bottom line is, start really getting getting. If you're in it, you know, this get away from it for a while and and do research. Okay, um, don't don't be as gullible um, as some people are. Don't. You know, join, don't be a sycophant or, you know, a cult member to anything, okay? Um, it, you know, there's just, the proof is already out there. It's not even a matter of searching for it. It's right in front of your eyes. And sometimes we just, we just don't want to see it, you know, like in relationships. I've known guys where their their girlfriends or wives are cheating on them. The signs were there. They just were oblivious to it. They didn't want to see it. So you can't be like this with your training because, honestly, I don't care where you live, anything can happen. Great school kids are carrying guns. Mm -hmm. um, even, even a friendly fight can turn bad. And I don't even mean getting shot, just serious injuries. You have to be prepared to defend yourself. And, you know, it... You may have to go outside the box to do it. That's all I can say. Joe, what's up on, on your agenda? Any modeling gigs? Any uh, You're on OnlyFans now, aren't you? Or what is it? Uh, oh, I've got, yeah, I've got work all over. So, yeah, you you know modeling agency. I'm involved there. So I'm definitely, i got some shoots coming up this week. So. Well, don't say you shoot. Know, you, have, you have a subscription to Playgirl, so you'll get those. 
position. <laughs> well, I want it autographed. And if you ever need a bodyguard, I'm the guy. Okay. Um, but anyway, thanks again for being on the podcast and, and everybody, thanks for listening and or watching. Um, Justin Brown, thanks for the shout out about my surgery, man. Love you. Can't wait to see you again. Give me some time to heal up. Uh, and all my Tri-C guys and gals, yep, keep it keep it coming. And um, all the seminars are still cooking for next for this month of March. Next weekend, we'll give you the dates again. Um, but anyway, everybody, you take care and thanks for watching. Thank you.